sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. I have no say. I'm the lead Democrat, so this is all up to the Republican side. I can't say everything's truthful. I don't know. The committee is going to want to bend over backwards to make it clear that they really want to hear from her, that her story must be told and she must be heard. And so I suspect they'll keep that date open for a couple more days. What's happening here is we're living in an atmosphere in which if a woman comes forward and makes an allegation, the, the burden of proof is on the defendant, uh, uh, the, the acu- uh, is on the accused. And that is, nobody's saying that exactly outright, but that's the subtext of all these comments. After another day of talks, a North Korean leader Kim Jong-un and South Korean President Moon Jae-in committing to a Korean Peninsula, quote, free from nuclear weapons and nuclear threats. To that end, Kim pledging to allow foreign experts to observe that dismantlement of its main missile launch and test site, also to get rid of its main nuclear production facility. And now, Stacey Washington. Wow. Welcome to the program. It is uh, great to be with you. I think we have a lot more content that we're going to get into this hour. Really good stuff. In fact, let's launch right into it. You have heard this discussion. I mean, that we, we have to talk about this. Um, with MSNBC and CNN uh, repetitively fixating on the fact that uh, many of the people who are on the Senate Judiciary Com- uh, Senate Judiciary Panel or Committee uh, and the subpanel, the, these individuals happen to be white men, and what they're saying is that this, there's something wrong with that. Now I don't know about you, but when I woke up this morning, I didn't see an option next to my mirror for me to toggle on, um, you know, like white guy mode or black guy mode. I just, you know, I'm just this person here. And I'm pretty sure this is the person I'm going to have to be until, you know, the end. So we don't get to choose and we don't get to change it up later. So if you happen to be on the Senate Judiciary Committee and you're white and you're a man, what exactly are you supposed to do? Fade into the background, not say anything out of respect, tell Kamala Harris she runs the whole committee and everybody else just sit down? What can you do? But I don't know. What am I saying? I'm putting a lot of logic into this discussion when we just really need to call people out for their innate characteristics that they can't do anything about. So here's a mashup of all of the media types that you know and have heard so many times calling out the fact that apparently being a white man is something akin to a crime. It's number three. Once again, it will be all white men on the Republican side of the Judiciary Committee questioning uh, both Judge Kavanaugh and Dr. Ford. The Republicans that are on the Judiciary Committee, it is a lineup of white guys over the age of 50. All the white men on the Senate Judiciary Committee. You've got all white men on the Republican side here. On the Republican side, all 11 are white men. The Republicans on the Senate Judiciary Committee, it's, it's 11 white men. And the Republicans, it is, it is 11 white men. The Republicans, it happens to be 11 white men. Are these white Republican men essentially going to um, ask her if, if she's telling the truth? 25 years since the Anita Hill hearings, what hasn't changed is the number of white men. I, I, I know, have covered lots of these um, white men. And so at the end of the day, if they have a bunch of white men 
once again defending another white man. Mm -hmm. You have 70-something-year-old white men, no offense to them, right. who don't like their process being disrupted. On the Senate Judiciary Committee is all white men. Uh, almost worst-case scenario for a bunch of white men on the Senate Judiciary Committee cross-examining Dr. Ford. Uh, hmm. So, uh, yeah, we... We hear them saying that, and it's no accident. What they want to do is trigger an emotional response in people who may have had a bad experience with a white man. Never mind the fact that the experience that you had was, it was not based upon the, person that, the fact that the person was a white man, but based upon the fact that it was a bad experience because of certain behaviors and certain things that happened, interactions between you and that person. But what they want to do is get people out of their logic centers. They need to get you from thinking logically to get into, into emotional reaction mode where you would automatically assume that because a person is a white man, they're, they're, oh, well, they must be for sexual assault. Again, the only people that you would know in your life who are in favor of sexual assault are criminals or soon to be criminals. Everyone else is against it. And it doesn't matter if they're a white man or a black man or an Asian man or a Hispanic man, they're against it because more than likely, that man has a mom or a sister and or a sister and or a daughter of their own or nieces or they're married to a woman. So any man who has any just, you know, forget about the morality and the things they've been taught growing up and, you know, that the man might be a Christian, you know, he might believe uh, God's word about how we don't do these types of things to other people. Just let's take the very basics, just the very basic assumptions we can make is that unless that person's a criminal or planning on becoming a criminal shortly, they're against sexual assault. Now, I know there have been cases of people enabling and things like that. People saying, well, you know, he only did that once. We shouldn't we shouldn't prosecute. And that's all well and good. But to say just because they're white men, they can't possibly have anything to do with this process or they can't do this process correctly. Come on. That's nonsensical. So let's get into some news here. First off, same topic. One of the friends of Justice Kavanaugh, Judge Kavanaugh, who has been uh, mentioned, has sent a letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee. He was a former classmate of Brett Kavanaugh's, and he says the party that was described that supposedly is where this incident occurred, according to Christine Blasey Ford, that he wasn't there. He never attended a party like that, and neither did Kavanaugh. It's Patrick J. Smith. He attended Georgetown Prep, an all-boys school in North Bessida, Maryland, alongside Kavanaugh. They both graduated from there in 1983. And he says he's singularly qualified to be an associate justice on the Supreme Court. And Eric Bruce, who is representing Smith, he has an attorney, authored a letter to Senate Judiciary Chairman Chuck Grassley of Iowa and Feinstein of California and said, according to this letter obtained by CNN, that he never saw this supposed misconduct that has been alleged by Christine Ford. He's saying that they hung out and they went to different things and, you know, but at no point did he see this behavior because she's named him as one of them. Christine Blasey Ford says, PJ was present when this happened. And he said 
in his statement, I quote, I am issuing the statement today to make it clear to all involved. I have no knowledge of the party in question, nor do I have any knowledge of the allegations of improper conduct. She has leveled against Brett Kavanaugh. Personally speaking, I've known Brett Kavanaugh since high school and I know him to be a person of great integrity, a great friend, and I have never witnessed any improper conduct by him towards women. To safeguard my own privacy and anonymity, I respectfully request the committee accept the statement in response to any inquiry that the committee may have. He doesn't want to appear before the committee because he doesn't want his family to have reporters staking outside their home. He doesn't want his face to be recognized, and he doesn't want online trolls to, you know, give him the same treatment that has been given to everyone who's involved in this. So nobody that Dr. Ford has mentioned as participants or witnesses to what she says happened, none of them remember any bit of it. Not PJ Smith, not Mr. Judge, not a single witness on her side. I just, I call on the Senate Judiciary Committee to hold their um, procedural vote. They're, they're basically, it's a irrelevant, useless vote that they always hold before they allow the vote to go to the whole Senate. Get it out of the way, get it done. Put this behind all of us. And by all of us, really, I'm, I'm talking about the Kavanaugh family. It's utterly ridiculous that they are being put through this. It is a shame. It is a travesty. And for those out there, I saw some online social media comments from people saying, well, he's going for the highest office in the land, like the Supreme Court's the highest office in the land. It's a lifetime appointment. Okay, true. He's going for it, so he deserves whatever he gets. Wrong. That is absolutely wrong. If, how can we get quality people to go out for these positions if the attitude is it's, it's basically a public lynching? We have to have a mob come together and vet these people. Not, not their histories, not their testimony, not their appearance, not their interviews, not their qualifications, not their education, not their opinions. Just a mob. A mob of angry, bloodthirsty, online social media trolls with their little claw-shaped hands striking the keys as fast as they can, typos and all, just taking everyone in their sight down because they have horrible lives and the only place they can vent that is on social media. No thanks. Not interested in that. All right, so we talked about this nearly half of the individuals residing in the top five U.S. cities not speaking English at home. That's nearly double the same survey number that was reflected 27 years ago. It's just released analysis of census data from the Center for Immigration Studies. As a share of the population, 21.8% of U.S. residents speak a foreign language at home, roughly double the 11% that we saw in 1980. In America's five largest cities, 48% of residents now speak a language other than English at home. In New York City and Houston, the number is 49%. In Los Angeles, it's 59%. No shock there, California. In Chicago, it's 36%. And in Phoenix, it's 38%. So let's unpack these numbers a little bit here. Among the top findings from the Center for Immigration Studies report, in 2017, a record 66.6 million U.S. residents, native-born legal immigrants and illegal immigrants, aged five and older, spoke a language other than English at home. As a share of the population, is 21.8%. And, and we did the five cities info. In 2017, there were 85 cities and census-designated places in which a majority of residents spoke a foreign language at home. 
And that's Hialeah, Florida, 95%. Laredo, Texas, 92%. East Los Angeles, California, 90%. Surprisingly, it also includes places like Elizabeth, New Jersey, 76%. Skokie, Illinois, 56%. Germantown, Maryland, and Bridgeport, Connecticut, each at 51%. Nearly one in five U.S. residents now lives in a city or CDP in which one-third of the population speaks a foreign language at home. Dale City, Virginia, 43%. Norwalk, Connecticut, New Rochelle, New York, each 42%. Aurora, Colorado, and Troy, Michigan, 35% of the residents speak another language at home. Rural areas outside of metropolitan areas report that just 8% of the individuals who live in those areas speak a language other than English at home. So it's, it's like two Americas. One America in which almost everyone you encounter speaks English in public and at home. And those communities, their crime rates, their, their employment rates, everything like that, you look at that. And then you see these large population centers that are run by liberals where increasing percentages of the population speak another language besides English at home. And you see the corresponding crime rates, unemployment rates, rates of taxation, and abysmal public education schooling outcomes. And we don't think that's connected. We don't think any of that has anything to do with anything else. The data released thus far indicates that nationally, nearly one in four public school students now speak a language other than English at home. In California, 44% of school-age kids speak a foreign language at home. One-third of the kids in Texas, Nevada, New Jersey, New York, and Florida, states that are currently contested by both political parties, states that will invariably go blue, of school-aged children, 5 to 17, who speak a foreign language at home, 85% were born in the United States. <laughs> so they're born here, but they speak a foreign language at home. Of those who speak that at home, 25.9 million, or 39%, told the Census Bureau that they speak English less than very well. This figure is based entirely upon the opinion of the respondent. The Census Bureau does not actually measure language skills. So the people admit that they were born in America, they speak a foreign language at home, and when they're out in public speaking English, they don't speak English well, according to themselves, just in case anybody wants to say that the Census Bureau is racist, because it's not. (laughs) All right. Uh, Call lines are open, 866-963-2037, and we have... Dr. Laurel Shaler, counselor, author, speaker, and professor at Liberty University, one of the best colleges in the nation. She's going to be with us right after this. Stay there. Good news. You are not stuck with your health care plan. Really? You have a choice, and it's a great one. It's called MediShare, and if you've heard about it and wondered what exactly it is, it's a way that people share their health care bills, and these are people who have a common faith, who want to be part of something beautiful that not only meets their health care needs, but the needs of others, too, and it's people who love to save money big time. MediShare members typically save $500 a month per family on their health care costs. That is a life changer for people, so this could be for you. Maybe it's what you've been looking for, a way to pay health care bills that's not only very smart financially, but it's even profound. 
MetaShare is a nonprofit with 400,000 members nationwide who pray for and share with each other. So yes, you're not stuck. There's another way and it could save you a lot. Hit star star 345 to find out how much you can save on your health care. Message and data rates may apply. That's star star 345. This is the Wednesday, September 19th edition of Our Daily Bread. God brings beauty from all seasons. Hi, and welcome to today's encouragement from Streetlights and Our Daily Bread. Today's article titled, A Fitting Time, was written by Kirsten Holmberg. Yesterday, I purchased an airline ticket to send my firstborn child to college. I'm surprised the keyboard on my computer still functions given the waterworks my eyes unleashed on it during the flight selection process. I have so enjoyed my 18 years of daily life with her that I am saddened by the prospect of her departure. Yet I wouldn't rob her of the opportunity that lies ahead simply because I'll miss her. At this juncture in her life, it is fitting for her to embark on a new journey to discover adulthood and explore another part of the country. As this season of my parenting draws to a close, another one begins. It will undoubtedly bring both new challenges and new delights. Solomon, Israel's third king, wrote in Ecclesiastes 3 that God appoints a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens. We humans have little control over the events of our lives, whether we view those events as favorable or not. But God, in his mighty power, makes everything beautiful in its time. In seasons of heartache, we can trust God to bring something good from them in time. Our comforts and joys may come and go, but God's works will endure forever. We may not relish every season, some are quite painful, yet he can bring beauty to them all. Today's encouragement was provided by Streetlights and Our Daily Bread Ministries. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. It's pretty transparent, though, that it all points in one direction. Delay, delay, delay. So at first, now we know, based on what we've been told at least, that Christine Blasey Ford was reluctant to come forward and was induced somehow to do so. Um, you know, Chuck Schumer was saying the other day that she should be able to come forward and whatever it is on her timetable to do so. But it looks to me like the Democrats managed to accelerate the timetable, perhaps not in her best interest. She's, this is a sensitive matter with her. She's, she, you know, it, it's caused her, she, as far as we know, some pain and difficulty. Yeah, I believe and that. It, and one, it has the appearance that she's been pushed. And now she may be pushing back or she doesn't want to testify, understandably. No, she never apparently did want to testify. And now, of course, they're finding a way to use that to say, we need an FBI investigation. Because the whole idea of this is to postpone the vote as long as possible. Right. Obviously, I think the Democrats had some hope that perhaps this, uh, what they thought were explosive allegations, would sink the nomination. That pretty clearly isn't going to happen, uh, at least at this stage. So, the, and the second best thing to happen was to stall it as long as possible. And that is unmistakably, in my judgment, what this is all about. Uh, wow. Uh, so astute. So, so well described. Um, I just got a quick note from uh, a listener asking that we designate a specific day and time to pray for Judge Kavanaugh and his family. And you know what? 
one of the best ways to do that, because if we say 10 a.m. every Friday or 10 a.m. every day, invariably there'll be someone who says, oh, I can't do it just then. How about if we just say, until we see this thing through, that when we sit down to our meals, even if you're eating on the go, if you're, if you're anything like me, you just say a quick prayer over your meal. You ask the Lord to bless your food. That you would also ask the Lord to bless this process and to see Judge Kavanaugh through it and his family. And we can pray for him when we pray over our food, which will mean at least once a day you'll be praying for the process and for him. I've been, I've been praying over this as well, but corporately together, there's power in prayer. Uh, the eyes of the Lord are continually roving over the earth, searching for a righteous man who can show himself strong in. This is an opportunity for us to rely on God to see us through this process, us including Judge Kavanaugh and his wonderful wife and children. So let's let's purpose to do that. And I will set a reminder on my show sheet to mention it on a daily basis so we can catch people who might have missed the show today. Um, and we, we're let's purpose in our hearts to do that, to rely on God to answer our prayers in this in this manner. Right now, it's my pleasure to welcome a fantastic guest. We're always so privileged and honored to have her on the show. Uh, Dr. Laurel Shaler, counselor, author, speaker, and professor at The Liberty University. Dr. Shaler, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to hear your perspective here uh, on the accusations against Judge Kavanaugh. I believe them to be utterly spurious, absolutely false, but they're still a part of the process and they're actually gumming up the works and slowing down the confirmation. Yeah, th- that's definitely true. I think anytime we have something like this come up, it raises some uh, bigger questions. You know, how do we deal with accusations? How do we deal with potential false accusations? How do we deal with with individuals within our own ranks who might possibly have done something that we um, would would uh, disapprove of? You know, this story is as they all are, is ever-evolving, and I personally had mixed thoughts and mixed emotions, and I've really just tried to be a voice of reason in my small circle of influence to say, you know, on one hand, we don't want to dismiss accusations. We don't want to brush them off um, for the chance that something could be legitimate, whether it's now or whether it's something in the future. For example, if we brush this off and then something comes up and it's a Democrat that we're trying to stand against, we don't want that to be brushed off. So we, we you know, the golden rule do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Um, and I also believe that it, it sends a bigger message to, to women in general and men, certainly as well, about whether or not they are going to be taken seriously if they do bring something up. Now, all that being said, of course, there are red flags in this case. I would never minimize that. I think Penny Nance, um, did an excellent job in the USA Today kind of describing all of that. She didn't minimize or brush aside um, Dr. Ford, but she also recognizes the red flags and the concerns and the timing of all of this. And it's really hard to know who is mostly at fault here, but certainly the Democrat leadership and their approach to this whole um, situation is, is, to use one of their favorite terms, deplorable. It is. Um, it's deplorable. It's not unexpected. I guess it's kind of, it's just, it's just turned into every Republican has to be accused of some kind of sexual misconduct. Every Democrat who actually commits sexual misconduct must be excused. 
and you just wonder how can we put a stop to that because it just seems like a never-ending double standard that really it this is slowing down the process we have so many other things that need to be done in washington and instead this is going to just last for weeks and weeks and weeks and really it takes all of the oxygen out of the room for other issues that should be you know news items that should be reported um let's let's talk a little bit about how women deal with sex, sexual abuse and how to detect the truth. Um, I'm, I'm interested in, in your thoughts on that, too. Yeah, and one thing that's really important for, for me to point out because of my work as a mental health professional is that there's a big difference between a client coming to me and me saying, I'm going to believe every client that comes to me. I'm going to take them at face value until they give me a reason not to believe them. That's different than when you're talking about a legal issue or, you know, somebody being tried in the court of public opinion, we do still, you know, owe it to both accuser and accused to, you know, offer them due process and, of course, presumed innocent until proven guilty. And that's that there's a difference between how I'm going to interact with someone in a counseling setting versus maybe what I'm thinking about something that's playing out on the national stage. Of course, I don't know. Um, Miss Ford, I don't, I've never met, met her, I've never even heard of her, to be honest, before all of this uh, came out. Um, I understand she was an esteemed, um, you know, research and, and psychologist uh, and professor, and she's done a lot of work. Um, and, you know, when I first heard about it, I thought, well, why would someone in her position put herself and her career and her life on the line? And I don't know if she's telling the truth when she says she and her family have had to relocate and that she's received death threats and that type of thing. I don't know. I certainly hope not. That that you know that would be awful because we just don't know what the reality is. And I do appreciate the respect that many Republican leaders have given her and have given the process. And even Judge Kavanaugh, he's not raining and railing against her. He's just standing firm in his position that this did not happen. Um, I was never involved in anything like this related to her or related to any other woman. You know, he's just standing firm. And I think that that respect is something that's really important. And again, we, we, we want to be respectful because there are women that come forward. We've seen it in the Me Too movement. We've seen it in the Church Too movement that are telling the truth. And we just don't want to brush these women aside. I saw someone engaging on Twitter on one thing that they said is, I'm not really concerned necessarily about what people think related to this situation, but what message are we sending to young girls who are afraid to come forward because they're saying, look, nobody will believe me. Um, so we just really want to be careful that we take a very balanced approach and that, that we respect both sides and that we wait for all the information, knowing that we may never get every, every bit of information, but that we may get enough to be able to make an, an, an our best informed decision and come come down on either side of this. And I think ultimately in this case, um, you know, I think that, that the vote will need to be taken and that the people that we have put in place to represent us can make that decision based on the feedback that they receive from their constituents. Yeah. So just speaking from the position of you're a counselor, you hear these types of allegations, you counsel women in these in these types of situations. Do you see credibility here uh, based on her own statements and, and her unwillingness to come forward now and testify before the uh, Judiciary Committee because they've requested, they've even said they'll send people to her to, to interview her. 
what what do you make of her stance that she's bringing forward allegations they should be investigated even though they've passed the statute of limitations but she's not willing to actually speak to anyone on the committee right i mean again i think that there are absolutely red flags um i i would be very hesitant to say 100 percent she has never been assaulted um I, was it by Judge Kavanaugh? Was it someone else? I don't know. I, I, I am concerned about the fact that she is pressing this issue with an investigation that is never going to happen because it, it wouldn't even be legal. It's outside of the legal scope. Uh, so it just makes you wonder, why would you do that? A lot of these things that people claim, though, I disagree with. Some people say, well, she doesn't remember important facts, so that means it's false. That doesn't necessarily mean it's false. A lot of people who have post-traumatic stress disorder cannot recall important details of their traumatic event. So that's not something that would make me say, oh, she's definitely lying. Um, coming forward years and years later, that's not that uncommon either. I have personally talked with um, individuals who I was the very first person they told, and they're in their 60s and 70s, and it happened when they were teenagers and in their 20s, and they've never told a soul, not even their own spouse. So none of that to me is a red flag. I think what's, what's most concerning is the timing, is the fact that now we're giving you an opportunity or you are being given an opportunity to testify, and yet you're not willing to to move forward despite bringing this up in the 11th hour when it gives the appearance of being a Hail Mary for the Democrats. Hmm. So the, the, mm. so if, if obviously I just, I guess my question is, so when someone comes forward with something that happened when they were 15 and they're in their sixties and they've passed the statute of limitations, are, what are they looking for in the way of kind of restitution or, or resolution on that? Like, what is what is the end goal in sharing it 50 years later or something like that? Well, I think, in, in a, and again, in a counseling setting, it's going to be different than the national stage. In a counseling setting, usually they want to just, just come to peace with this event that's happened to them, perhaps um, find some resolution for, you know, any upsetting thoughts or feelings. Um, or problems in their relationships that they may still be experiencing as a result of their trauma. In this case, it's obvious she wants to stop Judge Kavanaugh um, from being confirmed as a Supreme Court justice. Now, there's a whole different argument as to whether or not this would be enough, or if it should be enough, to prevent him. Somebody said yesterday, well, if it did happen, he was a teenager, even if it had um, gone through the court system, it would be sealed, nobody would necessarily ever know about it, you know, at least through that manner. Um, and, and I would kind of disagree with that because I would say, well, you know, if he really did do it, I'm sure we have people who, who haven't been involved in assault that we could, you know, raise up to be a Supreme Court justice and the highest, you know, court in the land. Uh, at the same time, it is clear that that is the end goal in this case is, is to stop the proceeding or slow it down try and get past the midterm elections, see what happens, or just turn everything into a three-ring circus, or like you said, just detract from the real problems that um, Washington is facing, including you know people like Ellison, who has had very little attention despite significant amount of evidence. Yeah, and I just, I'm just, I'm just trying to figure out what, at what point do we stop 
if this is the new norm where anything that happened in high school becomes something with which to destroy a person, where does it end, Dr. Shaler? Yeah, I, I think that that's a good question. And I don't have, I certainly don't have the answer to that. I do think that we should have very high expectations, but it should be across the board. And as many have pointed out, there is, it, it's so hypocritical for the Democrats who defended Bill Clinton to the nth degree that they would be the ones to say, oh, now it ends. Um, when again, there was a lot of evidence, you know, demonstrating that Clinton was, you know, guilty and he had lots of accusers, but that was okay um, because he was on their side. Uh, so the, the hypocrisy is really disgusting. Even Hillary Clinton, you know, coming out and saying, oh, we should believe her. Well, that's funny. You never said that about any of your husband's accusers. Um, maybe they should have been believed too. But I, I, again, I do believe that we want to be consistent. I think that's very important that we can't say all of our people are innocent and all of their people are guilty, just like they shouldn't be saying that in reverse. Mm. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's, uh, let's talk about from the male perspective, how should men go about combating sexual harassment allegations? Maybe, it, you know, speaking from the kind of, uh, Vice President Pence perspective, where he doesn't have dinner or meals with women alone. He doesn't meet with women alone and, and you know, the door closed and all of that stuff. So basically, he always has meetings of three. How do you, how how else can men inure themselves to these type of allegations? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And people have different perspectives on whether they should follow the, the Billy Graham or what we now call the Mike Pence rule. And I, I think there's a, a case to be made for that. Um, you know, on the other hand, I, I certainly don't want to see um, women not have the same opportunities as men, you know, because of that. Um, so we, we do want to have a balance. One thing that, that really is important is that when somebody is found to be guilty of making a false claim, that that should be prosecuted because we absolutely should put an end to the people who make false claims. And I hope that, that anyone who... And, and false claims are pretty rare. Statistically, they're definitely less than 10% according to the research. Um, but that's still a big number. And and it, it's a horrible number. It's horrible that anybody would make a false claim. And we know that sometimes that does happen. So we want to put an end to it by not tolerating that. And it, it, it can be difficult for, for somebody who's been assaulted to have proof. You're not always going to have proof that you've been assaulted. But we also want to weigh all the evidence. Even with Judge Kavanaugh, we have many, many, many dozens of women that have come forward, not just Republicans either, but um, women on both sides of the office that I've known and worked with them, some who even dated him, who said, I never thought anything that would indicate he would mistreat a woman in this way. So we want to, we can't just take this isolated event. We have to look at the person's character in their entirety to make a judgment. All right, perfect. Thank you, Dr. Shaler, Liberty University, counselor, author, speaker, professor. Thank you for being with us. We'll be right back with more right after this. This is Just a Minute with Stacey Washington. Research on religion and American life by the Barner Group shows that only 4% of professing Christians actually possess a Christian worldview. The Barner Group asks the following questions to determine whether or not a Christian worldview is present. Do absolute moral truths exist? Does the Bible define absolute truth? Did Jesus Christ live a sinful life? Is God the all-powerful and all-knowing creator of the universe and does he still rule it today? Is salvation a gift from God that cannot be earned? 
Is Satan real? Does a Christian have a responsibility to share his or her faith in Christ with other people? Is the Bible accurate in all of its teachings? The correct answer to all of these questions is yes. Do you agree? If not, you do not have a Christian worldview. Instead of going through the motions, let's use our lives to honor and serve God by living out a biblically sound Christian worldview in every avenue of our lives. I'm Stacy Washington. Find out more at StacyOnTheRight.com. Equipped with Chris Brooks. This program is an apologetic endeavor. What I want to do is really train you in the art and science of defending and commending your Christian faith to people who maybe they've been hurt by the church, maybe they don't believe like you believe, and you're saying to yourself, how do I have an effective conversation with them? Well, we're looking for an evangelistic edge, if you will, that will allow us to more effectively, more contextualize the gospel so that we can reach men and women for Christ. Quite often, the on-ramp, if you will, is looking at culture and taking advantage of the conversations that folks are already having and saying, how can I leverage this to get people to talk about Jesus? This show becomes kind of massively significant to you if your desire is to reach people for Christ. Get equipped with Chris Brooks. Join me Monday through Friday at noon Central Time on Urban Family Talk. I'm Chad Pergram with the Speaker's Lobby. No one is really sure about anything on Capitol Hill when it comes to the nomination of Supreme Court pick Brett Kavanaugh. There are questions as to whether there will even be a hearing on Monday and if Kavanaugh accuser Christine Ford will show up. Here's Senate Majority Whip John Cornyn. If she's not planning on attending, then I don't know what the point of going forward would be. And the top Democrat on the Judiciary Committee, California's Dianne Feinstein, isn't even sure about Ford's allegation. I can't say everything's truthful. I don't know. But I do know that... um, they had to contact her lawyers. There are questions as to whether Kavanaugh would even have the votes for confirmation. When asked if the nomination is in trouble, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell replied, quote, I'm not concerned. But Republicans have just 51 members in the Senate compared to the Democrats' 49. And the GOP can't afford to lose anyone without tanking the nomination. That's why anything is far from certain when it comes to the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh. With the Speaker's Lobby, Chad Pergram, Fox News. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. The U.S. government believes that U.S. courts, that U.S. courts, as it pertains to our citizens, whether it be our civilians or our military, those cases are best handled in the U.S. judicial system. We don't believe that there is any higher authority as it pertains to Americans than our Supreme Court, than our own judicial system here at home. Now, to your question, let me finish. Let me finish. Let me finish. Now, to your question about what is the appropriate venue to handle some of these very, very delicate cases that we watch closely and are passionate about. There are different kinds of venues that are options. We have seen in the past where tribunals have been held, where tribunals have been held in The Hague, for example, but not necessarily in one's home country. I'm not going to get ahead of some of the conversations that are being had here at the State Department and with the UN and others, but it's something that we will certainly take a very close look at what we believe to be the best venue for handling and adjudicating so some a, of those a cases. A special, a- an ad hoc tribunal we will take might a be look- okay? Matt, I can't, I'm not in the position to make policy here. I'm sure okay. you'd like me to be I right here. I would love to right now, but that is not my job. That's not my proper role. But the U.S. government, I can tell you, will take a very close look at what forum, what venue we think is most appropriate for handling these types of very sensitive cases. 
And so you're listening to uh, State Department spokesperson talking to this reporter who he gives her what for every single time she's at the podium. And he's just trying to pummel her on whether or not the American State Department views the international court uh, as something that we need to be kind of beholden to, that we're going to bow down to it. And and I find that interesting. I find that to be, it's fascinating that um, our reporters seem to want, like any any little tin pot dictator or weird court, we're supposed to just automatically um, bow down to it. You know, national sovereignty, woo, out the window. America, uh, you know, protecting our citizens under the Constitution, yeah, not such a big deal. Uh, you know, who cares, right? Just let's let's let these international courts come in on us and tell us what to do. It's the International Criminal Court, to be specific. And you've got Heather Nauert, you know, behind the podium. And this reporter, it's so interesting. He talks to her like she's a wayward child. Uh, and and I know I'm this isn't a me too comment or anything like that. It's just a, a statement of observation on Every video I've seen of him talking to her, he interrupts her repeatedly. He speaks to her in a very condescending manner. And she cracks jokes at his expense, I guess, to try to level the, the, the room. But it's, it's a crazy dynamic. It's almost as if um, she took his job. Like last time he went out for a job, she got it instead. And so he's just never, ever going to treat her with any respect. She's the spokesperson for the U.S. State Department. She should have some modicum of respect offered to her, whether whether the reporter agrees with her working for the Trump administration or not. The State Department is going to be there in operation, whether Donald Trump is the president or, you know, it was in operation when Barack Obama was the president. You can make whatever feelings you have about the Trump administration. You know, you can choose to be a professional or not. Really, that's that's the statement here. Um, so he's talking about faith in the Burmese judicial system to hold people accountable for what's happening to them. And it, it, this all surrounds the Burmese government handling cases to prosecute individuals who've committed genocide against the Rohingya, which is a minority group within Myanmar. So he asks if we have, the State Department has, faith in the Burmese judicial system, you know, to, to actually adjudicate these cases. And she says, yeah, what, I don't think we have that faith based on how they treated Reuters journalists, et cetera. Two Reuters journalists were arrested by the government and they were accused of breaching the Official Secrets Act. The U.S. Embassy said that um, they were deeply concerned about two reporters getting arrested. Uh, and now it was actually commenting on the U.N. report that was issued about this event. Now... Lee countered that he's actually talking about this ICC prosecutor who was going to open an investigation into the Rohingya themselves. And, you know, she she doesn't feel like that's enough, but she also doesn't support an ICC investigation. And she's also not wanting to get ahead of the process to which he and, you know, he responds to her by using some profanity, which again, you know, if that's the life you're living, if that's your best life is 
cursing at people when you don't agree with them, you know, I mean, nobody can stop you, I guess, if that's the new normal here in America. But I would hope that for those of us who still have a few synapses firing in, in sequential order and, you know, we, we can actually make some good decisions for ourselves, that that wouldn't be our primary mode of operation. Everyone makes mistakes. Everyone loses their temper. Everyone, you know, you, you, whatever. But he's sitting in a room. He's been given the opportunity as a reporter to ask questions of Heather Nauert, the spokesperson for the State Department. And his response is, well, he's just going to toss around a little bit of, you know, a little cursing here, a little condescension there. And I think he, you know, then wonders why she doesn't treat him seriously. She said she's not going to get ahead of discussions that are ongoing about what's happening with this situation. I'm choosing to just kind of highlight it because we have a distinct, it's a, it's a parting of the ways. On one side, you have the political left who feel that any 10-pot court, any, any little loosely held together organization can condemn the United States and we have to be subject to that. And then you have the rest of us who rightly feel that American citizens are under command sponsorship when they're abroad due to uh, their affiliation with the military or working with the federal government. And anyone else who's not command sponsored but holds American citizenship also holds the Constitution as their protection against other governments leveling charges against them and improperly prosecuting them, such as reporters, and that their Constitution also affords them the full force and protection of the United States government and that other courts cannot improperly prosecute them because they don't want to run afoul of the United States government. I'd much rather be in the latter group than the former group, wouldn't you? You know, as someone who I grew up, I grew up in Germany and there's nothing like seeing the change in attitude on someone's face when they realize you're an American and you're command sponsored. There's nothing like it. That same kind of respect to a slightly lesser degree, but still significant extends to Americans who are abroad. The problem is if you decide to go abroad into an area of the world where they don't really have a rule of law like North Korea or Iran or Iraq, someplace where, you know, there's there's little likelihood of someone being prosecuted for doing something to you, then that's a whole nother ballgame. But I definitely think people people discount it. If you've not spent any time abroad and you don't understand that we just have it so good here. We just have so many privileges here, so many rights and privileges, so many ways that we can express ourselves and expect that people are going to treat us a certain way because this is America. And then we we see and hear about people going abroad and getting treated much differently. And we're kind of like, oh, how dare they? I wonder why they think they can do that. Because they're not in America. That's why. Everybody doesn't have these same rights and liberties and privileges. I it's incumbent upon us to start appreciating that. I don't know that we do, but we should. Um, so I, I know there's a lot of commentary about whether or not, you know, the Democrats should find a new game as it pertains to this whole uh, procedure that that's going on. And I agree. Um, so old, so, so played out with what they're trying to do to Kavanaugh. Now you uh, also breaking news is that, 
former President George Bush has issued a statement supporting Judge Kavanaugh. But I wanted to get to before the end of the program, and and we have a few minutes left. If you'd like to call into the show, please join us, 866-963-2037. Oh, also don't forget to do the listener stories. Call in, leave us a, um, a message on our listener stories hotline. We would be so blessed to have you share with us how Urban Family Talk has positively impacted your life, anything like that. The number is 877-327-5647, 877-327-5647. And so let's talk about North Korea agreeing to permanently dismantle their main nuclear complex. So following a meeting with a North Korean leader, South Korean President Moon Jae-in announced that Kim Jong-un has agreed to permanently dismantle his main nuclear complex at Nyonbyon if the United States takes corresponding measures. So President Moon declared this at a joint news conference with Kim that the era of no war has started. Today, the North and South decide to move all threats from the entire Korean peninsula. They reportedly agreed to permanently close the Don Chiri engine testing and missile launching site and destroy the Yongbyong nuclear site. The two countries also said they would seek to file a bid to jointly host the 2032 Summer Olympics. Thus far, the regime has refused to provide documents of its nuclear weapons, stockpiles, production sites, etc., a matter the U.S. has required for continued cooperation. So North Korea has made significant steps towards diplomacy with South Korea and maintains a seemingly solid relationship with President Trump. But this agreement falls short of the U.S. requirement that North Korea achieve complete and total denuclearization. And President Trump has responded by tweeting out that these developments are very exciting. I agree. It's it's exciting. It's nice to hear. We hope for more. We hope for much, 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 much times 10 more. We hope for much more. And then so you might be thinking to yourself, well, my kids are in school. And one thing I can count on is when they're doing their math work, I don't have to worry about social justice in that. In fact, if you're if you've been listening and reading the news, you're thinking with your kids, maybe your grandkids, it's a great time when they're really, really tiny to start influencing them to want to, to take up math, uh, science, technology as a career path. And the way to get kids interested in that is obviously to expose them to it. Numbers and counting and games that are, you know, really geared towards math and science early on can give the kids a kind of a, it, it's basically make it exciting and fun as opposed to oh, no, I have to do my math homework. Oh, no, I have to learn my multiplication tables. Instead of a drudgery, you make it fun. So with that in mind, you're thinking, yeah, I'm already on that path. My kids love math. I hope they're going to go into the sciences or into the math career field. And so the social justice warriors are like, yeah, well, your kid can go into anything they want to. We're going to put all our social justice stuff. We're going to embed it in everything. So the federal government spent $1,009,762 training math teachers in social justice. The goal of the study is to teach STEM that is steeped in the context of social justice. The National Science Foundation is spending over a million to train two dozen social justice math teachers in Philadelphia. The Drexel University Project will promote science, technology, engineering, and mathematics high school curriculums that are steeped in the context of social justice in a project that began this past summer, recruiting 24 Drexel students who are actually working on their bachelor's degrees 
in STEM fields, they will train them to teach these STEM subjects in Philadelphia with an eye towards social justice. Have you ever heard more garbage? Well, of course you have, but this is pretty high up on the list, don't you think? The project will be used, they will use recent scientific, mathematical, and educational knowledge to prepare and support the 24 pre-service teacher candidates with an emphasis on understanding the culture and life experiences of students in high-need schools. They want to promote social justice teaching. Now, this is just garbage. The project intends to promote social justice teaching by connecting science, mathematics, engineering, and the instruction of those subjects to students' personal experiences in their culture. Wow. All that money from the taxpayers. The research continues to May of 2023. It also involves a mentorship program for the teaching candidates to learn mindfulness meditation so they can develop emotional intelligence. Uh, It goes on. Inquiry-based instruction supports this approach as it opens communication among students by establishing a learning community of shared knowledge and experience. Seminars related to mindfulness and developing emotional intelligence will augment the scholar's coursework. The latter will be scaffolded to develop the following behaviors, professionalism, growth mindset, commitment to serving students well, and cultural competency. We could unpack that. I mean, growth mindset's actually not a bad thing. But really? And so much taxpayer dollars? This is why we need a committee of concerned citizens to come forward and audit the entire federal government, one department every 90 days or so, and cut everything that doesn't make sense. That's something we should get a movement started around, like Tea Party Part 2. God bless you. Have a fantastic evening. I'll talk to you tomorrow.